Hey everyone, welcome to Expansion Cast. Expansion Cast is a magical podcast I created so people could find simple or unconventional solutions to expand their personal awareness and experience. This podcast is dedicated towards revealing people's divine truth and how that divine truth works its way out into the world, one by one, helping liberate each of us on our personal path to freedom. If you love this podcast, please give us a rating and share. Hey everyone, welcome to Expansion Cast. Today on this episode, we have Dolphin Casper. Dolphin is a coach, speaker, and facilitator at Evolve Now. He has delivered over 2,000 talks, workshops, and programs to over 100,000 people. He has coached nearly every imaginable demographic. So please welcome Dolphin Casper. Dolphin, we don't know each other, but uh, welcome to Expansion Cast, man. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So what's happening for you these days? It feels like you've had a shift. Uh, yeah, I, to me, the the whole context of the coronavirus and the pandemic and, and the, the human global response to it has been um, striking, I, I think, on a lot of levels. My life, uh, in terms of what my days look like, of course, it's, it's fairly sequestered. It's uh, quiet and slower than usual. There's obviously less social interaction. But the funny thing is, is the last year or so for me was uh, kind of like a sabbatical. I, I, I hadn't worked uh, in the traditional sense for about a year and a half now. And so I was actually just in the process of getting a couple of my businesses started again after taking some time away. And uh, so this was, it felt like, you know, God, the divine, the world said, sit back down. Not quite yet. So it's been... Um, getting used to having less to do and, and less going on, but also knowing that um, as much as I enjoy the, the quiet spaces, that there's an opportunity to, to cultivate and to grow in this time that I think is unprecedented. And, and that goes for everyone. Um, there's a, a pause that's been struck on the status quo, on the usual functioning of the world. And uh, if we're interested, there's an opportunity to look and see things that we've never seen before. So I've been really enjoying taking advantage of that opportunity. And when you say take a look at see things that you haven't had a chance to see before, is that internal, external? Where do you, where, what are you seeing? Everywhere, everywhere. But uh, I'm really a, a strong believer that the, what we see externally is always a reflection of what's going on inside of us yeah. and in fact the the neuroscience and, and the, the research around that is, is quite clear that we essentially project uh, onto the world and then make sense of the world through that projection so that it is true that that what we see is dependent on what's going on in us and for me the the important factors of that are the culture that has grown over the last several decades um, is very much uh, a doing culture that that it, it's very much based on having, doing, experiencing. It, it's all quite coarse. It's all quite on the surface, uh, I would say. And when things slow down, and I think we've all had this, when things slow down, we become aware of things that we weren't aware of before just by virtue of slowing down. In fact, I would say, you know, if anyone has struggled with meditation or mindfulness uh, or a particular practice around those, um, what I could, what I would often say to them is just do things more slowly. Just by virtue of doing things more slowly, we naturally become aware of the more that's always there, but outside of our awareness because we're trying to track all of the loud busyness on the surface. So, so to me, there's an opportunity to listen and to see uh, levels and dimensions of reality that have always been there, but we haven't necessarily taken the time and slowed down enough to register them. And in a real way, those subtle things are more important than all the big loud things. If you want to think of it like science, 
none of the vehicles and, and spaces and buildings and all the stuff of, of, of human culture, none of that's possible without the tiniest, like quantum. All of that is dependent on these invisible, tiny levels of reality. And inside of us, it's the same. All of the big, loud, obvious things in us as a person, our personality, our emotions, how we do things, our skills, all of that's built and dependent on things that are far smaller and subtler than those. And, and when we become aware of what kind of the constituents of us are and start to work with them, it's, it's like the difference between putting a Band-Aid on something and getting to the heart of what's actually going on. So, yeah. you know, if you, have, if you have an illness in your system and it manifests as some kind of lesion on your skin, the Band-Aid is, is worse than useless because then it makes you feel like it's better, but you're not addressing the problem. So the real opportunity I see right now is that um, we can listen into where what we've called our problems have actually come from. The, the real genesis or origin of those things. And if we're willing, start to work with them in a way that will make all the difference moving forward. Yeah, I believe that too. Now, it was interesting that you said that what we see in the world is a reflection of us. So with everything you just said, I'm, I'm listening to you and seeing all this stuff that you're talking about as a reflection of your changes that you're going through. So what are you going through? Like what kind of changes, what's the real changes you can share with us, whether they're vulnerable or whatever, just to show that you're not above the same changes that everybody else is going through. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, for me, there is of course a heightened sense of uncertainty in my life. Um, And I think uncertainty is a piece that I've, tried to avoid and i think a lot of people can uh relate to this is a lot of the striving in our world a lot of the success a lot of the desire to be somebody and do something great uh is actually uh, a kind of coping against a sense of of inadequacy and against a sense of insecurity and and so what do you do when there's nothing to do and there's nowhere to get to and there's nothing to create and there's no one special to be it's just actually about being human Um, so for me i've been facing uh dimensions of that or flavors of that and there's just been an opportunity for me to see more deeply that old patterning in me i've worked with it a lot i've really put a lot of it to rest and i think we have this idea a lot of people especially if you've been in the personal growth space we have this idea that if we get it right, you know, or if we, you know, enlightenment is sometimes seen that way. It's like the answer and then it'll all be good after that. And everything that I've experienced and, and understood and, and taught uh, says that it's just, there's no destination like that. There's always next, even if you have a great awakening or you become enlightened, if you're one of the, the special ones, um, the, the, the Zen saying, which I love is, uh, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Mm-hmm. And, and the difference is that you're, you're all there in the chopping of the wood and the carrying of the water versus before enlightenment, you, you weren't all there. Yeah. So to sum up what you're saying is that everything that's been happening for you has been creating more awareness. Yeah. And opportunity to be with things that, as I started with, like when I'm busy, when I got a lot going on, when I'm juggling a lot of things, I don't necessarily give myself the time or the space to be with them. So, so mm-hmm. in this time of, of a slowdown, in this time of having maybe less to do or less opportunity to build outwardly, there's a natural opportunity to come inside. And, and maybe we have an idea that we'd love to come into our inner space and that it's all just light and love and joy and, and bliss. When the reality is, is that there's just more of life there. And, and all of it. So the light, the dark, the difficult, the easy, the, the pleasurable, the painful. Uh, I just feel like I've had more opportunity to be with all of that and, and to be honest with myself about, oh, yeah, that's the state of things inside. And, and I really have learned to see that as a, a beautiful opportunity. So when I come to dirty little corners that maybe I haven't cleaned up yet, 
I go, oh, what a, what a, a sweet opportunity. It doesn't feel good, but it's a sweet opportunity to get to those places and spaces that um, I maybe haven't made time and space for. Yeah, and uh, sometimes it's a bit of a struggle to jump into those spaces and, and nurture them. But once we get to the other side, it's beautiful, isn't it? And then Almost we do it again. <laughs> then there's the next. Yeah, exactly. So why do you think that uh, certainty is such a huge thing for people? You know, I mean, it seems to be people think that certainty breeds happiness. You think that's true? No, I, I think, in fact, it, it can often be a threat to authentic happiness, mm-hmm. um, at least depending on our orientation. It's interesting, the, that question, because I, I just read the book Ishmael. Have you read it? No. no. You know, so, so it's an interesting book. It, it essentially is a, a dialogue about the nature of, of Western industrialized culture mm-hmm. in reference to uh, more native uh, indigenous cultures that that are in alignment with nature, and and you know so some of the some of the themes that come through are just about how the creation of stability in terms of food. It was really kind of the agricultural revolution that that shifted that strong shift from hunter gatherer type societies to um, these more kind of civilization based. Uh, agricultural societies and that brought something that that wasn't certain in that way you couldn't plan your food in a way if you were in an environment that your your community or your village had been in for for generations you knew the food was there but there could be a drought there could be uh, a flood there could be disruptions in the food source and agriculture changed all of that and I think there's a predominant belief system that that was for the better. And you, you could make lots of good faith arguments about that. And you could also make lots of good faith arguments against that, that the, the, the security that we got from the industrial or sort of from the agricultural revolution and from the industrial revolution have bettered things from certain perspectives. And I think in profound ways have left us in a kind of existential uh, limbo in terms of what does it mean to be a, a living human being where you don't need to survive. You don't need to do anything to survive. That part of the equation is handled by society. What does that leave us with? And I think that's the existential question we're in right now and, and have been in for a couple of generations at least where um, that's not everyone, but for the most of the planet, that part of our existential equation is handled. Now what? And I don't think we have a coherent, concise answer to the now what. And, um, and that's the conversation that I think is most worth having right now, especially in the context of the pandemic. So do you have an answer? Do you have some sort of idea? I, I do. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I definitely um, fancy myself some kind of amateur philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to give real thought to these things. And, and what, what I come to, uh, I'll kind of weave a couple of things together because I think they're relevant. I think of life as in a, in a funny way, knowing where it's going. So if, if you took, you know, maybe the life of a tree, if you took just that single organism, which is made up of all sorts of cells and, and interesting chemistry and biology in the context of a broader system, but like if we just took the tree from seed, in the seed, what's needed for that tree to become its full expression is already there as long as the environment is favorable or favorable enough. And so halfway through the tree's life, in the context of the tree, that's the first time it's ever reached that stage of development. But in it, all of the information and knowledge necessary to fulfill is there. And I feel like we're in some kind of puberty uh, from, from the context of life. There's a puberty and a shift. And in a funny way, the shift includes the information that knows where it's all meant to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so then the question becomes, okay, well, what does that mean? And how do we use that information to, 
to participate in this coming of age, so to speak. And, and so to me, I think our nervous system is actually built to shift from a survival context to an evolutionary context. And I think there's actually, if you look at survival and evolution, they, they're, they're not the same thing, but they work together. And, and so it's in essence, when we are occupied with survival in the moment, we close off all sorts of avenues of learning, growth, and development. And in fact, in terms of the brain, we know that the, the learning centers of the brain, the executive functioning of the brain essentially goes dark when we're in a, a fight, flight, or freeze response. And, and so that's interesting that, that we have a, a societal dynamic right now where most people are stressed or in a kind of constant state of fight, fight, or freeze all the time, like the majority of their day. They're in some sense of being on guard against. And in terms of the nervous system, the nervous system doesn't really recognize the difference between that and having a, a legitimate threat to their life present. And all of that's cutting off our, our evolutionary potential. And I've also worked enough with my own uh, pieces around fear, and I've worked with other people quite a bit around the dynamic of fear, that when we can create a context where we're okay with the experience of feeling threatened or insecure, we actually reactivate those learning and developmental uh, aspects of, of our mind and our brain. And we end up deriving massive benefit from the very things that we had been avoiding. And for me, that's the shift. And it's on every level. It's like relationally, if we feel insecure and threatened with someone, and we close off and we turn into kind of fight, flight, or freeze, uh, all of the possibility of that relationship get cut off. All of the possibility of us sorting out our past and actually making sense of the present so we can move in the direction of a, a shared future, like a fundamentally shared future, all of that's not available. So, so for me, a question in my work and in a question for the world is how do we start here in my own experience with, with what feels scary, painful, or threatening, how do I work with the context that I create around that so that I'm, I'm able to have it without just coping or reacting? And, and the beautiful thing, I, some of my work is around what I define as the three contexts for, for communication. So I believe that there are three fundamental contexts for communication. One is intrapersonal. That's the communication that's happening within us. And we actually mediate and modulate that communication by how we relate with it, with our experience. And then there's the interpersonal communication, me and another. And, and that is all dependent, just like I was saying, like the, the big is dependent on the little. My interpersonal communication is fundamentally dependent on my intrapersonal communication, the communication I'm managing within me. And then there's what I call superpersonal communication. This is the communication that happens not directly through our one-to-one -one interactions, but any position of authority or leadership we have in our lives kind of has this organic trickle. People are watching us. People are listening to us. We might be setting up ways of being, ways of operating. If we run a business, if we are in the government, um, if we're in community and we hold any position of authority or leadership, we are participating in a constant state of super personal communication, which is dependent on our interpersonal communication, which is dependent on our intrapersonal communication. So it's, it's an inside job conversation and that I truly believe that as we individually manage and handle and really come wholly into relationship with the internal communication, we then can master the interpersonal and we then can master the super personal. And it has to be that direction the top-down approach to change doesn't work. It's not how nature works. And in society, it will never be the source of sustainable change and, and evolution. Do you not think that that communication top-down is happening all the time? Just whether our interpersonal communication is open to it um, gives it uh, power to change us? I mean, I would say that there's... It's, it's a system. And so information is moving in different directions. But when we're 
what I would call deeply honest. The, the, the honest information is coming from the inside out. So it's a little bit like when we realize some people are able to uh, discern when someone's being honest or not. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, yeah. So there's there's like a spectrum. Some people can spot inauthenticity like in the subtlest form anywhere. They just got it. Other people are essentially blind to it. They have no idea. Maybe you have someone on the autism spectrum or you know someone who just has no real ability to track and make sense of what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. And so when when we can see the truth out there or the authenticity of something outside of us, that ability is all dependent on the level of awareness, knowledge, and integration that we have inside. It's like a, it's like an essential capacity, but that is dependent on a kind of developmental aspect of our inner world. So just like you can kind of, um, I would liken it to like a skill. So if I'm a a world-class musician, I can spot tiny subtle errors or or where the musical piece isn't played quite to the music, or I can see the creative flavor that a musician is adding to what they're playing. If I'm a, a layman, someone who doesn't know music at all and doesn't know the piece and doesn't know the instrument, I'm gonna miss all of that. Mm-hmm. So our ability to see those subtleties is all really, it's developmental in our nervous system. And, and so that, that holds true in, in all of our kind of perceptual pieces. And, and in that way, the only way we can really accurately and effectively navigate the world and interact with information and discern, I think this is a, a super key conversation right now. How do we discern the truth from falsehood in the world of uh, uh, technology? where information is constantly flowing in and and not all information is created equal. So this ability to discern is is super important for us. And the ability to do that is an inside out movement. It is me relating to what is clear within me and that clarity within me then allows me to discern information that's really lined up and and, and authentic and information that somehow has been um, manipulated or is off the mark and, and one, of the, one of the orientations that's key for that, that a lot of people are not willing to have, is, is the uncertainty. It's, am I willing to hold off drawing conclusions until there's enough clarity and information for me to go, this I can stand on. And, and mostly, especially as I've kind of watched and, and in some ways navigated some of the conversations online in the last few weeks, there's very little availability for that uncertainty. People want to be certain, they want to feel certain, and they will go to war, literally and figuratively, to feel secure in their point of view. And then that's very problematic, especially when the pressures of, of the curtain, current situation uh, come in. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. If we think this is bad, things could get much worse than this. And how will we navigate those difficulties? How will we navigate the interpersonal interactions when things get even more uh, challenging, more uncomfortable. I think it's a real question that, that if we're not willing to face, uh, will be worse down the road. A couple of weeks ago, I had a dream and I had died and I met the gates of heaven or whatever, the gates of the afterlife. And there was great big um, wooden pillars and there was a woman behind each one of them. And I walked up and sat in the chair in front of one pillar and she said, tell me your story. So I started telling her my story. And she cut me off in my story. And she's like, oh, you lost your faith. That's why you're here. <laughs> I was like, and I woke up and I was like, wow, that's crazy. Because, I mean, that's the root of it, it all, isn't it? I mean, we have to jump. We have to take a jump. Nothing is certain in life. And if we don't have faith, where are we? And it seems like everything you're saying is tied to faith. But what do you have faith in? Yeah, and, and I, I don't tend to use that word. I don't really have a problem with it. It's just not the, the word I use. But I think what what you said brings me to, and this is a point that I think is is really, really juicy and important for us to engage, is 
what is our relationship with the fundamental nature of life? Is it that life is good or is it that life is somehow not good? If my relationship with the fundamentals of life is that on some level, in some way, it's just there's a goodness. That doesn't mean warm and fuzzy. That doesn't mean easy. That doesn't mean fair. But there's a kind of goodness to life. And, and you feel that goodness when you watch a nature program and you're watching the, the, the ecosystem, how it functions, how animals and plants are, are interplaying, how they feed each other, how one eats another, which eats another. Like, and there's this balance and, and a kind of harmony that resonates with us. We love it. Now, the, the reality of living in that nature context is not secure for the individual organism. It's secure for the system. And so for me, I have absolute faith in the fundamental goodness of the system of life, of the system of reality. And in the context of that, all sorts of difficulty and pain and challenge exists. Mm -hmm. They're not at odds with each other. The problem is, is when we believe we're entitled to a good life, to an easy life, to a pleasant life. And then we hold the difficulties of our life up against that idea, that false idea. And then, of course, the natural conclusion is that life is a problem. This life, this world, this society. And it takes us away from the faith that you're talking about, which is first, life is this incredibly beautiful, complex uh, organism that that has the mobility and the capacity for unimaginable expression and creativity and joy and equally to that the pain and the difficulty and, and the challenge is is a fabric it's woven into it with no difficulty with no pain there's no depth and there's no perspective so so they they can't be separated and i think our biggest challenge as human beings is we've tried to We've tried to separate what we think is good and nice and, and fun about life from what is hard and difficult and not fun. And, and now we're stuck. And that's, that's an existential, an unsolvable existential problem because it's, in, it's actually disingenuous to life. It's not honest to life. And, and, and then what do we do? So if I have an idea of how life should be, and then I have this picture or this direct experience of how life is and they're not matched up, I need to do one of two things. I need to make myself wrong for it, or I need to make the world and the, the people that make up this world a problem for it. And when you look at how we are, when we look at mental health and mental illness, addiction, when we look at societal issues, when we look at how people and governments are interacting, it's just rife with all of that. Mistrust, blame and shame, because individually we're not choosing to first be okay with life as it is. And, and I know that's not an easy ask. I just know that it's our way forward if we really want to do it in a way that's sustainable and holistic. Absolutely. I think we've been taught over and over again what a good life is and what we should be trying to achieve, how hard we should be working, all these things that really don't take us anywhere. Uh, they don't give us quality of life because, I mean, quality of life is really in how we interpret and accept events that are coming our way. Um, I know I talk to lots of clients who have a huge, when we talk about emotion, like if it's anger, it's you know way over to the one side and joy is way over to the other side. And most people can't find joy in anger. They can't find joy in sadness. But what happens when we can find joy and love in all, all emotions Man, it just changes a person's whole life. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what I'll point to actually, and that's a really lovely point that you're making, is we have a couple of choices when we get to, say, a, an aspect of life like an emotion and we've made it wrong somehow. We can approach it kind of from the outside. We can try to make sense of, okay, well, anger is like this and, and here's how I'm being with it and I can change how I'm being with anger. And, and, and that can be effective. And one of the other things that can be really effective with challenging emotion, especially fear, anger, sadness, these are the ones that we tend to label as negative or bad, is to 
have a, a somatic practice when when the emotion arises because emotion and physical experience are, are very much connected and interwoven mm-hmm. and what we discover when we get into a deep somatic practice with our emotion is that what we call anger is actually a constellation of thoughts and feelings and experiences what we call sadness it's not like your anger always is exactly the same especially when you start to really subtly relate to it you start to feel oh you know this is more intense than yesterday or this i feel this in my in my stomach and yesterday it was in my shoulder or you start to get all of this variability in the experience of anger and when you get into a really deep practice of that you start to dissolve what you've called anger you start to recognize that anger is a, a, a label or a category of, of constellations of experiences and you've oversimplified. And, and one of the things that actually becomes a, a really common natural consequence of a deep somatic practice with emotion is we find that underlying all of the experiences of those emotions, there is a, a natural joy that's there. I would call it a joy of being. Mm-hmm. And the only way to kind of reconnect with it is to release our hold on what labeling and judging anger does for us, what labeling and judging sadness does for us. There's a payoff in how we've held emotion. And when we let go of that payoff, we start to come into just the essential experience in the body, in the mind, in the emotion. And and, and again, this has been so common in the work that I've done is that we don't have to try to do joy. We don't have to create affirmations and gratitude practices around joy. It is what all of our experience arises out of. There is this joy of being. You see it in a baby very easily. Even in their, even in their crying, there's this fullness of expression and it's ecstatic. Sadness, pain, discomfort. There's an ecstasy in the expression because it's unhindered. It's not, there's no parameters or, or holding in it. And, and as adults, we can come back to that way of being in our emotion. And there's some, there's some uh, surrendering that's required. There's some pieces that we need to let go of. So it's a great example. So what do you think the benefits are? Like, what's the payoff? Like, you know, why, why do people keep doing this? Why do they keep riding this old horse? I would say the primary payoff is the sense of self we get from being the one with the anger, from being the one with the fear, from being the one with the sadness. So if I have been mistreated, if I've been hurt or abused in my life, and there are these, that, that, that's sort of like a common anger, fear, uh, sadness. Those are very common emotions when, when we've experienced difficulty and, and trauma. And then we cope as best we can because we're, we're survival organisms on one level. And then we end up identifying with the coping strategies and the experiences that go along with them. And so then identity, coping mechanisms and experience all get woven together into a, this is who I am. So the letting go of the labeling and the value judgment of emotion is also the letting go of our sense of self. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a really uncomfortable feeling because in a way we've grounded our sense of security in our sense of self. So then what you're doing is you're, you're saying, step into this painful, uncomfortable, uncertain place and step away from what has been more secure, more familiar, more, uh, more feel it feels more safe even if it's emotions that you say you don't want underlying that that desire to be rid of your anger or your fear or your anxiety is your attachment to sense of self and identity so in a way that's the inescapable path for someone that wants to be free of of the negative relationship with emotion is they also have to be free of their hold their attachment and their use of their sense of self to cope. Mm-hmm. So I had a uh, interview a couple or a week ago or two weeks ago with a Swami, and he said that the biggest hurdle we have is misunderstanding. 
and that that's really our only hurdle is to beat that misunderstanding and and move beyond it and i think misunderstanding is quite an interesting uh, maybe it's a simple concept because like you say when we're we're in this what we consider a safe place like i use i use the story of going down a river and there's some rapids coming up you've never been in rapid rapids you're by yourself you have a an anchor and you throw it out and your boat ends up in the rapids so what do you do maybe you're scared you know there's a whole bunch of trauma happening and but you feel safe because your anchor's holding you still and after a while you just become accustomed to the rapids and you're just bouncing around and living that way but you become okay with it and the surrender is in going and pulling the anchor out and continuing your journey and i think that's maybe that sums up what you're saying but the the certainty is an illusion because the certainty is the anchor giving you the illusion of safety what do you think of that yeah i think it's a good analogy and uh in life, it seems counterintuitive, but some people favor the rapids as dangerous and uncomfortable as they can be because they've become accustomed to them and they've identified themselves with them. So for some people, when life gets calm and quote unquote, good, safe, healthy, they freak out. I worked with homeless youth for a number of years, and it's incredible to see what happens when you when you have a, a essentially a child that's been living on the street for a few years, and then they get their own apartment, and they actually go back to the street. I think a lot of people have ideas about you know social work and working with really challenging populations that they just need resources. That if we just housed them all and gave them food and it would all be good. And, and not saying that resources aren't really helpful. It's just on its own, not enough. Because if that person isn't able to create a new context for their life and a new context for what's difficult about life, they will naturally gravitate back to whatever is most familiar to them. Even if that familiarity includes hardship and abuse and violence and drugs and death, they will go back to it. Yeah, because, so, so, because they yeah. still they still experience the same misunderstanding. I, mean, I can give yeah, somebody and, a light, and that's not going to help them. They have to come to it themselves. Yeah, and I would I would say that it's not actually understanding that there is something that precedes understanding that's more key, because you can give someone all of the information the answer can be staring them dead in the face and they won't see it. Not because it's too difficult to understand, but because they don't want to understand. Well, because the- on some level, they know that understanding is the end of their old life and the, the, and the end of their coping and their, their practice mechanisms of feeling secure in some way. Right, So, but there's still a deeper misunderstanding. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's it's more essential than understanding. And understanding to me brings it into a mental recognition. To understand something is like you can see it, you can maybe explain it. Mm-hmm. But but there's something that precedes the understanding that is more like our willingness to be with life as it is. That that clear seeing and understanding all naturally arise out of our willingness to be with life as it is. So you would say that every time that you have, let's say, a change in how you experience the world, maybe something that brings you more ease, more equanimity, that there was no understanding that shifted your perception and allowed you to drop into a new 
paradigm? I would say that it, it's ultimately dependent on the context you're creating. In other words, you can see information and dots can connect for you and then you can experience equanimity and you could draw the conclusion that, that the equanimity came from the understanding. But if you get more deeply into how, how our system actually functions, what you would end up seeing is that you had a relationship with understanding that was when you don't understand, you feel insecure and not at ease. And when you do understand, you feel at ease. And so then you relax. So then the information came, you felt secure in the information. You then relaxed because you felt secure in the information and you experienced a sense of equanimity. So you had a conditional relationship with being with life as it is. You wanted the information and the understanding, and then you are willing because of that to be in a balanced state. What I'm suggesting is that you don't need the information or the understanding to be in that balanced state in relationship to life as it is. It's actually our most natural state of being. Mm -hmm. We need to actually work to not be in balanced relationship with life. What you're talking about is that at our most basic essential beingness, we're beautiful divine beings that have no struggle, basically. I don't know if, would you say that's accurate as what you're saying? Uh, I would say that we're most essentially a kind of, we're actually most essentially a kind of creative space. And then from that, in the space, we have form, we have a being, we have physicality. Right. And the space we create for that physicality informs and inspires how that physicality develops. So the, the way I try to make sense of that is you have two people and they experience something very traumatic and difficult. And as they grow and develop out of that traumatic experience, one of them becomes quite closed off quite restricted because quite of because tight. of misunderstanding because of their unwillingness to be with life as it is because the, that, and that would other, be rooted in misunderstanding right well the misunderstanding develops but but the misunderstanding is sourced in an unwillingness to be with life as it is so the the person who's not willing to be with life as it is as a result of a trauma is going to develop a, a way of being and a way of of, of in interacting that's closed off that's reactive the person that experiences the trauma and is consistently willing to be with life as it is will develop depth, perspective, presence, resilience. So these are human people, human systems that experience a, 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 an insult to their system that throws them out of equilibrium. And then the aftermath is full of choices. Choices fundamentally about, am I willing to just be with what's there and work with it? Or am I in some way trying to avoid or get away from what's there? And that choice is about how we are with life, how we relate within life. So to me, that that's the centerpiece of, of the development of our system. It's the centerpiece of our healing. It's the centerpiece of our ability to fulfill our potential. So would you say people have a destiny? I mean, that's kind of a cliche question, but I think it's relevant. Mm. I believe in destiny, and I don't believe it's a singular or static destiny. Mm -hmm. so, I think, and it's exactly what I was just talking about. Our willingness to be with life as is transforms our destiny. Yes. If, if I'm at odds with life as it is, then the likelihood that I just recycle the patterning and conditioning of my past is essentially guaranteed. The more I'm willing to just be with life as is without resistance, without avoidance, this whole space of possibility opens up. It, it's, it's, and it's actually neurologically how we function. If I'm in fight, flight, or freeze, I am going to use my most practiced pathways to function. They're the most efficient. They're the most powerful. They're the most trustworthy. We use them when we have no other choice and we have to survive. The moment I create a new context, an evolutionary context instead of a survival context for my life, I now open up all of these branch pathways that are less developed, 
that weren't available before when I had this resistance. My resistance to life locks me in the most established pathways, locks me in my current trajectory of destiny. The moment I open to life, the moment I'm willing for it to just be as it is without it needing to change or be better, all of this new space and new pathways of possibility open up, new pathways of choice open up. And, and, and I believe that is true for everyone. If you have conscious awareness, presence, and recognition of choice in life, you are responsible for the trajectory of your destiny. And, and, and a lot of people don't want that responsibility because it's much easier to just blame, to make someone or something wrong, including ourselves, and to not be responsible for the real possibility and potential that, that is like what we're made of. This genetic information, this physical system, this consciousness that's, that's of us and in us is so ripe with potential. And um, mostly we're not accessing it because the road to fulfilling potential is not an easy road. Anyone that tells you it's an, a, an easy road or a fun road or full of just lollipops and sunshine is trying to sell you something. Totally agreed. And I, I think it's it blows my mind sometimes that people don't want that responsibility because, I mean, that's where like the most amazing payoffs are. That's where, where life gets its transcendent beauty is where, I mean, yeah, it might be more difficult, but wow, what a, an amazing place to be. And what's neat is that very ordinary people, people who have had nothing to do with personal growth or spirituality or any of that stuff, get clear about that, usually when they have a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one recommendation I will give to clients or just to people out there for the podcast for people listening, is the more we can in a healthy, open-hearted way, keep our death close to us in our living the more perspective we have about the opportunity of life, about the magic and the potential of life. The sense that death is some kind of terrible thing and, and that we should live forever and, and or we just sweep it under the carpet and pretend as though we're immortal beings, which is kind of how a lot of people navigate. They don't want to mm -hmm. talk about it. They don't want to bring it up. Our approach to the pandemic is heavily rooted in our sense that death is bad that death is to be avoided at all costs. And I know that'll probably light some people up and, and get some, some attention or some resistance, but um, it's not that I think dying is good. I just know it's not bad. As part of a living system, it's integral. It has to happen. And, and, and I really believe that, that some of what's not grounded and rooted and, and, holistic and responsive to how we've approached this pandemic globally is rooted in this unresolved uh, avoidance of and making wrong of death. Mm -hmm. So what part do you think is going to light people up? Because let's light them up. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's that. Um, are we overreacting? And I've asked that question a couple of times in the last few weeks. Are, are we really implementing the best possible plan? Are vaccines the best idea in terms of approaching these kinds of illnesses? People come back with extremely rigid, righteous responses, wrong-making, essentially insulting me, telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and in the context of maximizing human life, avoiding human fatality maximally, I get that response. Right. I'm just asking the honest question, is that the priority? Like if we looked at deaths from cardiovascular illness or stroke because of lifestyle, what kind of resources and response and mobilization are we putting into creating a society where people don't kill themselves out of basically addictive behaviors? Where, where I think over 80% of our healthcare budget goes to keeping people alive when they're ill at the end of their lives. I don't want old people to die. That's not, that's not what I'm advocating. I'm asking the honest question about 
what is our relationship with life? So, so essentially what the, the, the underlying unconscious narrative that I hear is from, from the arguments is death is bad. We should be able to live and do whatever we want, however we want, and not have to pay consequences for it. You know, like that, that's, and then we'll use technology and intervention as a way to mitigate the, the costs and risks of the lifestyles we've chosen. But the people with the lifestyles that have the cardiovascular issues, I mean, I don't want to get to a lot of people sending me hate mail here either, but a lot of people want to die. I mean, that's that's their choice. You know, the lifestyle they choose, the lazy lifestyle of not taking responsibility and, you know, doing your eight to 10,000 steps a day or whatever it is that you need to do to you know, to live. Um, yeah, I, I feel that those people actually want to die. So, but then we're spending all sorts of money to, you know, allow them to live longer or to to medicate them for years and years and years. When yeah, and they're legally not allowed to die, right? Yeah. So, so that's that's interesting. We we've created a a, a capitalistic system that caters to immediate satisfaction of, of very superficial wants and needs that kill us, no question. And then you're not allowed to die. We will actually force you, we will force medicine on you to keep you alive. Now, of course, there's lots of variability and nuance in, in this scope that we just opened up, mm -hmm. um, but that's a funny thing. Like if you just you say you were an alien coming from outer space and you were to look at human society you would kind of scratch your head and go, what is going on down there? Like, what are these people doing? And, and I'm not even saying I have the answer, but when I look at our systems, when I look at our systems of healthcare, when I look at our systems of mental health support, when I look at our systems of government, when I look at our systems of, of food, very little makes sense to me. Of course it, it serves its purpose. But uh, in terms of something that is holistic, that, that really honors um, what works on a deep level and kind of through all of the other levels of human society, I don't see it. And, and I know that it's, it's, it's latest iteration, like compared to times of the past, there's so many benefits to living in our human culture today. I'm just suggesting that those benefits may not outweigh the, the, the downside. And, and I think it's hard for us to see because we're attached to our comforts. We're attached to having a medical system that can intervene and save our lives. We're attached to having the food that we want when we want it, you know, at the push of a button. We're attached to now to having, you know, any item in the world delivered to us the next day from Amazon. Uh, I had a conversation with someone in Vancouver a while back and we were, we were talking about, you know, changing the system, changing the, the society and, and what he was advocating for was everyone in the world getting what they want. Everyone should have this great lifestyle. And I thought to myself, you know, not only do I not believe in that, it's so not functional. Like there's so much wastage. There's so much overuse of resources. There's, there's a totally unsustainable system right now. And, and his thought was to add the seven and a half billion people of the world to a baseline of prosperity and, and comfort that that he believes he should have and that everyone else should have. And it's 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 sort of a, a misguided utopian view that everyone should have everything all the time. And none of the bad stuff. It, in a way it's 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 childish, but in some ways I think we're we're still quite attached to that paradigm. There is something in it that makes sense to me, which is Currently, we have a, a highly kind of um, exclusive access to resources. You know, just it's, it's a very steep pyramid in terms of who the haves and have nots of the world. And most of that is based on greed. I'm not down with that. I, I, I really would love to see more humanism in, in the world of, of wealth generation, wealth accumulation. And um, it doesn't mean I don't think some people are, are uh, have a right to what they've earned. You know, like 
I've done very little in my life and had very little and I've done more in my life and had more and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just the, the, the nature of the distribution of wealth right now and the way in which wealth is controlled and used to control systems um, to me is, uh, is disastrous. Not just to the people who don't have. It's disastrous to the people that are implementing that because in some way they have to separate from their own heart to, to, to pollute in that way, to destroy in that way. So, you know, and again, it all comes back to this. I think about Trump. I think about there is a human there of mm -hmm. all the caricatures and the memes and the ridiculous things that people say about him. Um, he's a human being and he's doing what he's doing for his own reasons. And a transformation could happen there. I, I truly believe Trump could have an awakening and transform his life. Is it likely? No, I wouldn't bet my house on it, but it's possible. <laughs> and, and, and that's heartening for me to know that someone like, say, Putin or Trump could actually transform themselves in their life, live a totally different way. That's my faith. That's my faith in life and that's my faith in humanity. And I know that my only access point to bringing that faith to life is first in me, and then in how I live my life. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's perfect. Yeah. So living your life in that sense, do you find that uh, a lot of people are starting to mirror how you live your life? People around you? I mean, I get a lot of feedback about people feeling supported by me, people feeling inspired by me. Um, you get everything as you put yourself out into the world more and more you get more of all the feedback so i definitely also get my fair share of, of critique people challenging my thoughts and ideas um i i was quite sensitive to that when i was younger mm -hmm. i wanted people to like me i wanted people to like what i had to say and and that censored me uh, in ways that i was aware of and also in ways that i wasn't aware of and more and more i recognize that if i'm going to be fully expressed and if I'm going to be a, a, a genuine, um, healthy contribution to to a world that, that means something to me, that's just part of the deal that I, I put myself out and I, I am willing to receive people's responses to that. I, I worked with youth for years. And one of the beautiful things about social media has been that every once in a while, a youth that I worked with like 15, 20 years ago will message me. And they'll say something like, hey, Dolphin, I just want you to know that you know, I was having a really rough time uh, when you worked with me and, and our relationship or that time we went on that trip or that program that you ran made a real difference for me. Thank you. And, and I know that those moments of transformation, those moments of interpersonal transformation are constantly happening. And mostly we don't see the fruit of the transformation. And, and I think that's why it's so important for us to be relational instead of transactional with our giving to the world, with our expression into the world. It's like, do it because it's your love. Don't do it so that you can wait and see how that landed or how that changed someone or something. It's fine if you get that feedback <clears throat> and, and, and it nourishes you. But if you wait for that, or if you're afraid that it doesn't turn out well, you'll censor yourself. You'll, you'll in some way hold back your full expression, which essentially is holding back your full love. It sounds like you're describing Donald Trump. <laughs> In what way? Well, the that, opposite of that? No, no, he is that. I mean, he doesn't censor himself based on opinion. I mean, he, there might be fruit here that we don't see. I mean, I would say he is, he is willing to put himself out. That is for sure. My, my question or critique of him might be the motive for it. Right. What is that kind of, it's like people talk about radical uh, honesty and, and there's a place for a kind of honesty that is not afraid to be fully expressed, but the radical honesty can easily be used as a mechanism to be insensitive or callous mm -hmm. or a jerk. So, so again, where is it coming from? What's the real motive for it? And, and if it's love, if it's connectedness, if it's relationship, that's a beautiful thing.
So Dolphin Casper, if people want to find you, where do they find you? Yeah, so I mean, I'm very easy to find. There's only one Dolphin Casper. It's with a K, K-A-S-P-E-R. Uh, so social, all the social media platforms, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh, you can reach me on there at Dolphin Casper. And then uh, I have a website, evolvenowinc.com. So E-V-O-L-V-E-N-O-W-I-N-C.com. And that's my business coaching website. And, and really my focus is around transformation uh, of the person, of the interpersonal and of the superpersonal. So it's, it's communication based, but it's, it's very much about the transforming of the present moment and, and accessing possibility. Awesome. Awesome. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. We have not ever talked this much. Um, we met each other at a festival and here we are uh, probably like three or four years later. I don't I know. love that about technology and just how we, we are connected and, and how easy it is to reach out and, and, and touch into relationship with the technology. I, I've been appreciating that. And especially right now with everyone, you know, more with their devices to, to connect. It's been sweet. So thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. This podcast is Expansion Cast. Thank you for listening.